The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and, and worship you here today. And Father, we just thank you for your word. And as your word is preached, I pray that your purposes will be worked out. I pray that it, the gospel will be heard. I pray that uh, no word is wasted. And I just pray that we have hearts to receive it. And I just pray for help, Lord, help in conveying your message to your people. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right. All of us have suffered from hard times at various times of our lives. We come to church, we usually come to church with the mood to celebrate, because we're going to come and worship our Lord, at least we should anyway. Many times, sometimes we just don't feel like celebrating. Sometimes we're going through some tough times. We're going through some sort of what's called affliction, or what the Bible calls affliction, what our passage calls affliction. It's hard times, it's suffering grieving. Maybe some of us are going through affliction now. How do you tend to feel when you're in the middle of affliction? I know I tend to be anxious, distraught, discouraged. Uh, could be called depressed, maybe. Uh, have a sense of foreboding. Uh, felt grief. Maybe some of you are asking, in the middle of your affliction, is there any hope? In the midst of this affliction, how can God be good? But I want to ask you a question. Is it possible that God is being good to you in your affliction? Today we're going to listen to the testimony of a man who claims he saw God's goodness like never before because of the affliction that God allowed in his life. He's saying it was affliction that helped him see and enjoy God's goodness. We're in Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72 today. Now, Psalms are God's inspired prayers for his people. Songs of praise and worship. You find instruction for life, prophecy. There's anguish in the Psalms. Prayers for help, comfort, and great rejoicing. 119th Psalm is the longest of the 150 Psalms we find in our Bible. It's an acrostic. Now, if you're like me and slept through poetry section of English, high school English, an acrostic is it's a song or a poem where the first character of the first word of each line will spell out a word or a motto or, or, or some message. In our Psalm, there's 176 verses. And it's broken up into 22 stanzas. Each stanza is eight verses apiece. Now, there are 22 characters in the Hebrew language, so that means there's one stanza for each character in the Hebrew language. Starting with the first letter, Aleph, each line within each stanza begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first stanza starts with A, or Aleph. And the next one starts with the next letter. And so on until you get to the end of the, uh, to the psalm. Now, this cannot be seen or duplicated in any other language. 
I know people have attempted to do this in English and have failed miserably because the English language just doesn't, can't do it and still be, remain true to the Word of God. So this is undoubtedly done. Psalmist undoubtedly did this so that it will help the uh, psalmist to recite this psalm. Theme of the Psalm 119 is the Word of God and the psalmist's love for his Word. And almost every verse mentions his Word in one way or another. It calls it God's law, his way, his testimonies, his commandments, his precepts, his judgments, his righteousness, his statutes, his truth, his Word. Our section today, we find the psalmist reporting that he is been suffering from affliction. In the midst of the, this affliction, he does the unexpected. He thanks God for his afflictions and praises God for his goodness in the midst of them. Why? Why is he praising God for God's goodness when he's being afflicted? Well, let's take a look at our text. Starting in verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. First of all, we won't need to know is that God is good and does good. In verse 68 it says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Here the psalmist gives glory and praise to God for his goodness. God is good. An amen for that? <laughs> We can see God's goodness in a number of ways. We see his goodness in creation. Each step of the creation story, we see that what God did is good. He created light, and it was good. He created the universe, and it was good. He created vegetation, and it was good. He created animals, the birds of the air and the, and the fish of the sea, and it was good. Then he created man, and it was very good. See his goodness in various ways, sunsets, scenery such as canyons and mountain scenes. Uh, you can see it in sunsets, I think I said that already, full moons, myriad of stars. You can see his goodness in a delicious meal or maybe gathering of friends. <clears throat> now we can see, also see God's goodness in man's creativity, a beautiful poem or, or a beautiful song or, or other ways that man is creative. We can see God's goodness. But what does it mean that God is good? Who gets to define what good is? Depends on one's perspective. If the self is perspective, then goodness is based upon the degree to which the self is satisfied or made happy. And it's also based on time. Or people or things, or even God, is good based upon to the degree of which I'm made happy. And it's based upon time. We typically live or give our attention to the short term. So if I am pleased at this moment, then whatever it is, is good. And this leaves the future entirely out of the equation. It ignores the fact that something that brings short-term pleasure can bring pain, suffering, or loss in the long term. It also ignores the fact that good can eventually come from pain or suffering in the short term. For some, goodness is equated with niceness, never hurting one's feelings or, or always being positive or complimentary to others no matter what the behavior is. And this can lead to non-judgmental tolerance, a behavior that can lead to affliction and suffering. 
And goodness is sometimes measured by being generous or loyal or humble or spiritual. Wow, that guy, he's really generous. He's good. Or Wow, person, that's really spiritual. That's a good person. They're, they're spiritual. But how does the Bible define goodness? Our psalmist proclaims that God is good and does good. And throughout our passage, we see the psalmist turning to the Word of God. Because the Word of God is where we find what goodness is. Verses 68 and 70 mentions God's statutes. It says, teach me your statutes, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 69 says, with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Verse 66, I believe your commandments. Verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 65, according to your word. Verse 67, now I keep your word. The psalmist trusts, loves, does, and endures in God's word. It's in God's word that God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself to us in his word, and he reveals himself that he is good. Now, some would say that that would be circular reasoning, but it's not, because actually it's biblical reasoning. We have to start somewhere. We're dealing with an infinite being. We're finite beings. Somehow or another, the infinite has to convey himself and reveal himself to the finite. And since we believe the Bible is the word of God, we believe that God reveals himself in his word. In his word, he reveals himself to be infinite, eternal, all-knowing, and all-powerful, and all-good. He knows the beginning from the end, from his perspective, from the perspective of eternity, he has the ultimate say in what is good. And the psalmist praises God for that. We see his goodness in creation, and we see his goodness in his grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is kindness from God that we don't deserve. We know from God's word that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. From his word we know that the wages of sin is death. In God's justice all sinners deserve his wrath. But, you see in verse 65 of our text, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. However God has dealt with us, he has dealt with us far better than we deserve. God puts himself in subjection to his word. He says he's going to do something. He puts himself in subjection to his word and deals well with us in love with the design to work for our good. By his grace, he makes a covenant with us. A covenant is a, is a binding agreement. He, he cannot break this covenant. He spoke it. He's going to do it. He's going to keep it. In his word, we see his covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this is a promise to all of God's people. And this is his promise, his solemn oath, that he will deal well with us. It is by his grace that he's not dealt with us as we deserve. And it is his word that we see the fulfillment of his covenant, we see the gospel. We see God's goodness in creation. We see God's goodness in his grace. And we see God's goodness in the cross. It's at the cross that God deals well with us. We have the benefit 
over the psalmist of hindsight. The cross is in our past. For the psalmist, the cross is in the future. It is a, a promise from God to his people. It's a, kind of a foggy promise. It's out there somewhere. They, they know, God's people knows that God is going to do something. But compared to the psalmist, we are far richer in God's word. Since God has fulfilled in our past his promises, which to them were in the future, we have the benefit of the New Testament. It is in the New Testament that we see how God fulfilled his promises to his people. It is in the New Testament that we see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is at the cross that, that was a foggy, far-off promise to his people is now revealed to us in all its glory. It's at the cross that we see God's grace poured out. We see his goodness, and now he has dealt well with us. We see a sinless Christ who lived a, a perfect life, pleasing to his Father. He was hung on a cross as punishment for the sins of his people. We see his goodness, God's goodness, in, in raising Jesus from the dead and uniting his people to him so that they may escape God's just wrath so that they can live, so that we can live with God, enjoy God for eternity. We see that God's judgment, or that we see that God's goodness glorifies himself. Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness Pass before you, and will proclaim you before, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So here, God's glory is His goodness. God is love, and doing good glorifies God. And the glory of God is seen in Jesus Christ, the exact image of God, full of grace and, and truth, and full of God's goodness. It was in Jesus that the goodness of God was perfectly manifested. We see it in his teachings, his compassion, his healings, his miracles, his obedience to the Father. We see it in his death and resurrection. We see the glory of God's goodness in his sovereignty. God also says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. There's no one wiser than God, no one more powerful than God. God is not bound to be gracious and merciful to anyone. It's his choice, his prerogative to show grace and mercy. Full display of his goodness was seen in his working of his grace and the redemption of man. We should be thankful that God is good to his creatures. The fact that he's good to sinful creatures displays his character and his goodness in a far more marvelous way. We should be thankful beyond measure that God is graceful. God wants you to see him as he is, the very best. Nothing compares his goodness. Nothing compares to him. He is worth all, he's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. He wants you to see his goodness. He wants you to see his glory. And part of God's goodness 
is that he afflicts us. God uses affliction so that we may believe, love, do, and endure in God's word. He uses affliction to take away the small g goodness of the self so that we will turn and see and, and cling to the capital G goodness from him. Capital G goodness of God which leads us to him. And what is the reason people do not see the goodness in God's word? Verse 70 says, Their heart is unfeeling like fat. King James Version says, Their heart is fat like grease. Imagine cooking a bunch of bacon. And everyone loves bacon, right? Right. <laughs> Eating a bunch of bacon, but instead of cleaning up right away, you just let the grease just kind of sit there and coagulate and whatever grease does. It just just sits there for a while and gets all gross and ugly, kind of disgusting. And that's the condition of a, of a heart that, that doesn't see God's goodness, that doesn't see his word and the goodness of his word. It prevents them from seeing that God is good and his law is good. To them, God's word is just a list of unpleasant rules to follow. We cannot see his goodness. I know back when... Um, my heart was like grease before I could see the goodness in his word. Back when I was a Christian, quote unquote, I mean, if I'd taken a poll and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I was confronted with the gospel. And my fat-filled, greasy heart didn't want to hear it, didn't want anything to do with it. I responded with disbelief. I felt a certain offense to what was being said. I deny that that could possibly be even true. At the same time, I felt something happen inside me, too, when I heard the gospel. Someone preached the gospel to me, and I heard it. Even though I denied it, I ran away from it, something happened. And I know I've shared this with you in the past. After I was confronted with the gospel, and I don't know, it was a couple of years or so, I decided to sit down and read the Bible, the Word of God, for the first time. And it's through reading the Gospels that God revealed to me through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is God. <clears throat> that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. In the Word of God, I found the one who deserved no affliction, but yet was afflicted in, in such a way that makes me cringe. It makes me, makes me shudder. Saw so a man who did no wrong, but yet was whipped and beaten unmercifully. He was hung on a cross, stripped naked, hung on a cross, and left to die. Now, it's through God's law that I discovered that the punishment, the affliction placed upon Jesus was reserved for me. It's through the reading of God's precepts that was revealed to me that Jesus took the punishment I deserved. That he died for me and rose again from the dead. It was in God's testimonies that I was led to believe it was in God's righteousness that I have been delivered from his wrath. It was in God's way that I should believe in Jesus. It was in his truth that I have been united to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And, and, and that righteousness of Jesus was credited to me. So now when God looks upon me, he sees his son Jesus. I've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I've been united to him. He took my punishment. He took my shame rose again from the dead, and because of that, I can live with him in eternity.
It's through the reading of Scripture that I found salvation, that I found forgiveness, that I found my Savior, that I found God. My fat-filled, greasy heart was more than flushed out. I didn't get some spiritual statin, which kind of temporarily resolved some things. It wasn't a, a bypass. It, it, this was a transplant. It was a new heart. It was a heart that responds to God, a heart that, that loves his law. And it's unlike a transplant formed by man where you have to take a cocktail of drugs so that the body doesn't reject it, this, this, heart, this heart needs the word of God. And this heart also loves the word of God and loves his law. Because now I see it. I see his goodness in his word. I now trust it, and I love it, I do it, and I endure in it. So we see God's goodness in his creation, in his grace, in the cross. See God's goodness in his word. We can trust his word. This is something we must settle for all time, in our minds for all time. We can trust his word. His word is trustworthy. You see throughout our passage in the whole of Psalm 119 that our psalmist trusts God's word. He, he stakes his life on the word of God. He clings to it, and we can too. Isaiah 55:11 says, Show, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, we see it throughout Scripture that God's word will come to pass. God's word is trustworthy because God is faithful to his word. What he says, he will do. Second Timothy 3.16 says, my favorite verses, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable by teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because God's word is breathed out by God and God is trustworthy, his word is trustworthy. Never give yourself an option to God's word. Trust, with, trust in it with all your heart, all of it. Trust in all of his word, trust with all your heart, and act on it in faith. For the word of God, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. God's word is the anchor of my soul. Through the years since I came to believe, when faced with uh, great uh, challenges, uh, whether, you know, heartache, you know, sorrow, testing, trials, whatever it is, the only thing that provides comfort, the only thing that provides real confidence and hope is the holy, inspired word of God. There is no other anchor that compares to the word of God. I look back at my life and I shudder to think how I could have gotten through some of the things that I went through without relying on God's word, without seeing the hope provided by God's word. <clears throat> and all of his promises are contained within them. I mentioned that the cross was in our past. There are still promises of God awaiting us in our future. It's those promises that when we're going through these afflictions, these tough times, that it's those promises that we look forward to. We will make all things new again. He promises to make all things good. It's those promises that help us endure, that give us hope in the midst of our affliction. We get to spend eternity with God. What could be greater than that? And all of our afflictions just melt away like they're nothing. We see God's goodness in his word so we can trust his word. See God's goodness in his word so we can love his word. 
Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of his mouth is more valuable than all the gold and silver in the world because it brings us to God. It reveals to us who he is. It reveals his beauty, his grace, his goodness, his majesty. We all come to Christ through his word. His word brings us back when we stray. His word brings us comfort, strength, and hope. God has dealt well with us according to his word. Everything that God has to say about salvation through Christ is in his word. He is faithful to his word. What he says he will do, it will come to pass. Probably repeat that a few times, but that's important to know. We find eternal life in his word. We love God's word because it shows us God. See God's goodness as word so we will trust it and love it. We see God's goodness as word so we will do his word. Verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. We must be taught what the Bible says. We must be given understanding. The psalmist already believes God's commandments. In fact, he cheerfully embraces them. He already believes in God's authority to command them. Now he asks to understand them more fully. The word here signifies good taste and good understanding. He wants to be able to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong. He asks for a better mind as, as well as a better heart. And he desires to, confirm, to conform to God's commandments and, and to make him afraid to stray from it. He asks God to enable him to do his word. If you believe and want to know then God, through his Holy Spirit, will teach you. Every time we read the Bible, every time we hear a sermon, hopefully even this one, we should want God to teach us. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We should want to know more fully God's commandments so we can apply it to our lives with great skill and maturity. We see God's goodness in his words, we will trust it and love it and do it. We see God's goodness in his word so we can endure in his word. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The psalmist here is confessing his own rebellion. Now this is common to all mankind, and we find that we are not immune to straying, even when we claim to trust, love, and do God's word. We never yield to God until we are compelled by his chastisements. As long as the Lord deals gently with us, as long as we are easy in the world, we tend to go astray. And God uses affliction in our lives to humble us and draw us back to him. It teaches us to rely on him. If a prophet of God required him to have his rebellion forcefully corrected by God, how much more do we? Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he believes. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? 
I know it's hard, but when afflicted, we need to pray that God's purposes will be worked out. And our affliction should lead us to see that God is good. God uses afflictions to remind us of who we are in Christ, to remind us that we are his children, to remind us of the one who knew no sin, who was the only one to fully love God's word, but was afflicted so we can be dealt dealt well with. And that, of course, is Jesus. Should remind us of our duty to him. This should drive us to trust his word and love his word and to do his word and help us to endure in his word. So let's see the goodness of God and trust that he is using affliction in your life so that you can see his goodness even more. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So see the goodness of God in his word. Trust it, love it, do it, and endure it. Today we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, we have an open communion. Please partake with gladness. If not, just let the elements pass you by. And as we take communion, let's trust his word. Let's remember his promise that his body and blood was shed for us. Let's pray. Father, we again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who lived your word, fulfilled your word, and endured in your word, who took the punishment reserved for us and rose from the dead so that we can live with you in eternity. Father, I just, I just pray that you know, my words, will, that you can use them. I hope that I glorified you. I hope I glorified your son. I hope I glorify your gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.